Hello, celestial citizens. I'm Britt Duffy Adkins, and welcome to Continuum. The universe is expanding, and so is the space industry. So with all the new developments, announcements, and launches, it can be a lot to keep up with. So we're here to help. Continuum is a news outlet that's making space news relevant for the next generation and boldly challenging the status quo. Whether it's new discoveries and developments in technology, or how what we're doing in space affects us here on Earth, we'll cover it all. Currently, we're posting our stories to our website, www.continuum-hq.com, and on our newsletter, which comes out every other week. Not only does our newsletter include links to our features, but it also contains a rundown of some top headlines from the week, as well as recommended space reads from around the web. The video version of our show will return in the coming weeks, so be sure to keep your eyes peeled for the date of the next live stream. You can find links to our website and how to subscribe to our newsletter in the episode description. Haven't had a chance to read the newsletter yet? Then this is the podcast for you. So whether you're a space enthusiast or just starting to look up at the stars, we'll take the highlights from our stories and collect them for you here. We are the outlet providing space news for everyone. So without further ado, here's the highlights from this week's Continuum. First up, let's take a look at some of the top headlines from this week. One, two, three strikes and you're delayed again. NASA has made the announcement that it will move the SLS rocket from the launch pad at Kennedy Space Center to the Vehicle Assembly Building. This comes after three unsuccessful fueling attempts or wet dress rehearsals for the SLS. While initially slated for a June 2022 launch, the numerous failed attempts and path forward look murky. Also this week, the National Academies of Science released Origin, Worlds, and Life, Also referred to as the Decadal, this report comes out once a decade, hence the name, and identifies the most important question facing planetary science and missions needed to answer them. The report isn't a legally binding document, but it does serve as a strongly heated recommendation for future research objectives. Currently, the Decadal is recommending the highest priority mission should be the Mars sample return, which is currently underway. But another point of interest is a Uranus probe. Also on Monday, Kamala Harris announced a ban on U.S. anti-satellite missile tests. The tests have contributed to the ever-growing amount of space debris orbiting Earth, which remains a growing concern. Harris asked other spacefaring nations to follow suit, as the U.S. is the first to make this commitment. And after 183 days in space, three Chinese astronauts landed back on Earth this past weekend. This marks China's longest crewed mission to date. The Shenzhou 13 mission astronauts completed the fifth of 11 missions to finish the Tian space station later this year. And a new study out of Stanford suggests that Jupiter's moon Europa could possibly carry life. The evidence? The similarity of its frozen surface and a landform in Greenland. Both feature double ridges or long gashes in the land that have two peaks with a trough in the middle. Greenland's double ridge formed due to the refreezing of liquid water, and if Europa is formed the same way, it's possible there is liquid near the surface. Also this week, make room at the table, Space Force. The Canadian Space Division is arriving. In the next six to eight months, Canada aims to form a new military space division. 
Royal Canadian Air Force Brigadier General Michael Adamson is currently the service's director for space and said that it is important for Canada to determine what space capabilities it needs to develop and which ones it can leverage from allies or become involved in joint projects. We'll have more on some of Canada's space prospects in a bit. And if rockets could be roommates, the Long March rocket would probably be the messy one you have to keep reminding to pick up after itself. Because on April 2nd, six metallic ball spears, metal balls, and a ring fell from the sky into rural western India, interrupting a community feast and scaring locals. Two Indian scientists from the Indian Space Research Organization conducted an on-site investigation and have tentatively labeled the parts as part of a Chinese Long March rocket. Currently, a formal investigation is underway. As of now, China has not commented on this incident. And yesterday, Astrobotic Technology showed off Peregrine, its nearly complete lunar lander built for NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program, which is scheduled to launch later this year. CEO John Thornton hosted the unveiling, stating that Peregrine will be the U.S.'s first lander headed back to the surface of the moon, nearly 50 years since Apollo. Astrobotic is also building a bigger lander, Griffin, to deliver 500 kilograms of payload, including NASA's Viper rover to the South Pole of the Moon in 2023. And also this week, South Korea will be investing $619 million in national space programs in 2022, which is 15% more than the amount the government originally proposed and represents an increase of 19% over 2021 levels. With a number of rocket, satellite, and space exploration projects on the horizon, it seems that South Korea is eyeing substantial growth in its domestic space industry. And lastly, called on account of rain, NASA, Axiom, and SpaceX decided not to undock from the ISS on Tuesday due to unfavorable weather conditions. They are now scheduled to return on Saturday with Crew 4 waiting in the wings and rehearsing for their upcoming launch. We hope for a safe return for the Axiom crew. And now on to our feature stories for the week. In recorded history, only 12 humans have set foot on the moon. And all 12, much like the line at Chili's on a Friday night, have been white American men. With the Artemis program, that's set to change. NASA's next effort to get to the moon is set to land non-Americans on the moon. But with those first flights just a few nebulous years away, What passports those non-American astronauts will carry remain, for the most part, murky. Still, it's hard to deny that the opportunity is very exciting. Artemis is an international program, and it was initiated by NASA with much of the program's planning being prompted by Donald Trump's presidential administration, which was not exactly known for its internationalist spirit. The program's goals include placing the first woman and first person of color on the moon, language that touches on American cultural politics, but it will need to rely on international cooperation to get those astronauts to the moon at all. Dr. Rosanna DiPlano, a legal scholar specializing in space law at the University of Leicester in England, says that no single state, including the United States, has sufficient means to conduct human spaceflight operations of this scale on its own. After all, there's no eye in space travel. The Americans are still in the control chair of the program thanks to the Artemis Accords, 
which lay out the program's guiding principles, including new rules and a new consensus on lunar service activities. Any country that wants to send astronauts to the moon via Artemis must start by signing the accords. So far, it's been signed by 18 countries, Russia, China, with whom NASA is banned from working, and India being notable absences. Russia and China are reportedly planning their own lunar station. Antonino Salmeri, a doctoral researcher in space law at the University of Luxembourg, says that from NASA's perspective, if a state qualifies as a responsible actor and they commit to the principles in the accords, then that means they can talk about negotiating actual binding agreements. He says the accords function as a sort of pre-check. The next step for such a country will be to negotiate a deal that involves getting its astronauts into the program. Diplano says that other non-American astronauts are selected as part of a package deal between NASA and the states providing parts of the spacecraft or scientific instruments to be used for the Artemis missions. They might also include equipment to be used on Gateway, the station that is planned to orbit the moon sometime in the late 2020s. There's one example of what this might look like so far, and it comes from the U.S.'s own neighbor to the north, Canada. To read about the Canadian Space Agency's current plans with NASA and other potential international partners, check out the rest of the story, Seats for Signatures, by Rahul Rao on our Continuum website. And now on to our second feature of the week. Space is almost as silent as it is vast. After all, in space, no one can hear you scream. But while it may not be possible to hear anything in the vacuum of space, one research group has made it possible to hear space itself, or at least to hear the systems floating within it. System Sounds, a self-described SciArt outreach project founded by musician and scientist Matt Russo, along with Andrew Santaguida and Dan Tamayo, uses a process called sonification to transform scientific data into intricate musical compositions that represent the way a system or data set behaves. Russo says that when you combine music and science, it becomes an effective way to engage people and help them feel connected to something that otherwise would be abstract and unfamiliar. If only someone could do this about filing taxes. According to Russo, the whole project started because of the discovery of one very special system, TRAPPIST-1. The system is now most famous for containing seven rocky, approximately Earth-sized planets, all of which could potentially have liquid water on their surfaces. The discovery of TRAPPIST-1 was like a bomb going off in the exoplanet community, and now it is one of the most studied planetary systems outside of our own. But Russo was drawn to the unique system for another reason. The orbits of all seven of the planets around TRAPPIST-1 form the longest planetary chain of harmonic resonance we've ever discovered. This means that the timing of every planet's orbital period can be linked to the orbital periods of the other planets in the system using simple whole number ratios. For example, if the outermost planet orbits the star exactly twice, the next planet in will have orbited three times and the next one in will have orbited four times, the next six times, and the remaining three, nine, 15, and 24 times. It's the same phenomenon that makes harmonies sound good in music. So if a sound wave vibrates at a frequency of 70 hertz, a sound wave vibrating three times as fast at 210 hertz will nicely complement the original sound. The link between music and space was exactly the spark that Russo, who had been struggling to choose between pursuing music 
or astrophysics needed. So to sonify a system of orbits, Russo collects the orbital frequencies of the planets and uses Python coding to turn these frequencies into notes by speeding them up. Once the notes are established, Russo's creative side takes over. He and Santa Guida use those notes to compose their pieces, turning gravity and time into drums and piano. System Sounds has tackled a variety of other projects since Trappist-1, and you can read more about them on our website under Sonifying the Universe by Jackie Apple. And that's it for this week. Again, if you want to read the full stories, check out our website, www.continuum-hq.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at continuum.hq and Twitter at continuum underscore HQ. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can stay up to date with what's going on in space. And while you're there, leave us a review so others can find us as well. And of course, subscribe to our Continuum newsletter on Substack for curated space news content. Tune in two weeks from now to keep up to date with all the cool stuff happening up in that big, beautiful cosmos we're all floating around in. We are Continuum. One giant leap every other week. Continuum.